invite you to open the Bibles, if you have one, to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. You can stand if you are able to stay standing. Acts 17, beginning at verse 16, we are in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey and looking at a well-known passage, Paul preaching the gospel on Mars Hill. Acts chapter 17, beginning of verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, them being uh, Timothy and Silas, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, well, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrections. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who had lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for... In him we live and move and have our being. He quotes there one of their poets. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring, quoting again one of their poets. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now... He commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. And so Paul went out from their midst, but some joined him. And believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is God's word. Pray that he bless it to your hearts this morning. You can have a seat. Thank you. 
Well, if you were here with us last week, we saw how Paul engaged people with some knowledge of the Old Testament. And this week, what we see is Paul and how he engaged those with virtually no knowledge of the Scripture in the great city of Athens. And I think this accounts a very helpful model of how to communicate the gospel to our own pluralistic society. Our culture that's becoming uh, progressively more and more pagan in its orientation. And, and not only do I think this is a good model, I also think it's very, very encouraging because it demonstrates, like last week, yet again, that the gospel, as Paul says, is indeed the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. To the Jew first, but not only to the Jew, but also to the Greeks, to the intellectuals to the thinkers, to the philosophers, to the pluralists of our own day, to those people today who say there's no absolute truth, those people who think that religion is the cause of all the world's problems. The gospel is still the power of God under salvation, even for those with little to no knowledge of Scripture. And I think we derived that by understanding what happened there at Athens. Athens, you remember, was the greatest city of Greece's past cultural heritage. Uh, the great city the birth, where the birth of, of many things like democracy and philosophy, medicine, science. It was the city of Socrates, Aristotle, Plato. Now, it was near the sunset of its greatness at this point. They had been conquered by Rome, but it was still the cultural and the uh, intellectual center of the Roman Empire. All the uh, you know, high-minded Romans um, uh, wished to live in Athens, looked to Athens. Athens was still the, uh, the place where cultural elites lived at that time, and so it exerted great influence upon the thinking of people uh, in, in the Roman Empire. And the heart of this cultural and intellectual city was the Greek agora, uh, translated here, marketplace. Now, that may be an unfortunate translation because it was nothing like the farmer's market. Uh, so I don't want you to think of it that way. This wasn't, Paul wasn't taken to the, uh, or going to the uh, shopping district or to the Saturday farmer's market. The agora was a very large main gathering place a big open area, and archaeology now says it was possibly about 30 acres in size, and it was surrounded by great buildings with columnades and, uh, and public buildings and so forth, and you could see from there the great Parthenon and, uh, and the great statue of Athena and so, and so forth. It was, um, it was the economic, political, um, civil, cultural heart of the city, buzzing with a mixture of people who were interacting there on various levels. There was food and other things being sold, but it was much more than that. And so before mass media, you know, before newspapers of any kind or magazines or certainly before television or the Internet, you had the Agora. That's where people went before there was a stock market or even paper money. You went to the Agora, and there there was trade going on. People gathered there to hear the news, what's going on in the world, to exchange ideas, uh, to trade. And generations of thinkers would gather there, philosophers, uh, to debate ideas, to, to learn new things, to compare notes, and so forth. 
Socrates frequented the Agora. But it was also a city that not only had the Agora, it was also a city that was full of idols. The text says at the top of many of these columns you would find their idols that dedicated to gods. Uh, there were statues to gods and altars to gods filling the city. There was a well-known saying, in fact, and it was that it's easier to find a god in Athens than a person <laughs> because it was just so filled with these images everywhere you looked. And the curiosity of Athenians had become proverbial. Look at verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. In other words, they, they were just possessed uh, with this idea of novelty and it had become part of their reputation. Cleon, Cleon was a, a Greek general who became an aristocrat. He became a politician and so forth. And he had said some 400 years before that, he had said about the Athenians, you are the best people for being deceived by something new which is said. <laughs> and so that was what we have here in Athens, a city full of idols intoxicated with novelty, not unlike our culture today. Uh, people... Uh, with constant news feeds, podcasts, video blogs, a desire for uh, something new, reaching, reaching. There's so many people I meet that have this sort of internal um, uneasiness of missing out. Missing out on something they haven't heard yet. Uh, catching up on what's really going on. And that just becomes what consumes them. Uh, and really what this was was an indictment then and today, an indictment of the emptiness of human reasoning, human philosophies, and worldviews, apart from God's revelation, because it always left them, despite all these centuries of the greatest thinkers, it always left them searching for something new, <laughs> looking for the latest and greatest. Why? Because their souls were not satisfied, they were still searching, they did not know God. And so Paul comes into this context to make the unknown God known to these high-minded Athenians. Now, I want you to see, first of all, his motivation, and then his methodology, and lastly, we'll look at his message. So, what was Paul's motivation in communicating the gospel to these intellectuals? Well, it says very clearly that what he went into Athens, what he saw was not a city full of great art, a city full of great architecture. Well, that was there, but what he saw, beloved, what he had the spiritual eyes to see was a city full of spiritual emptiness and idolatry, a people going round and round with religiosity, but going nowhere. You know, Paul, when he went to Athens, he wasn't visiting old ruins taking selfies, you know, like, like tourists today. When Paul went to Athens, Athens was still Athens. And he didn't just see statues to gods. He saw the worship of God. 
He would have seen sacrifices, temple prostitution. It was vibrant with all this immorality associated with, with temple worship. So don't picture Paul like some tourist. He was there in the heart of the darkness. And it says here that his spirit was provoked within him when he saw this. So he reasoned. In other words, that was his motivation. He, he was deeply upset. It's an interesting word, uh, provoked. Paraxunomai is the verb. It means to suffer an extreme emotional distress. And it was an ongoing tense here that Luke uses. In other words, that he was just constantly feeling like this as he's made his way around the city of Athens. And we derive a, 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 our term, a medical term, paroxysm, uh, which refers to a, a seizure or a spasms, some sort of attack. We derive our term from that. Now, what's interesting is also this, is that this word, this Greek term, was also used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Hebrew, the Septuagint. It was used of God. And God was provoked. He suffered this heart attack, if you would. He was distressed when he saw his people worshiping idols. And it's, it's used of him in Deuteronomy 9, 7, Isaiah 65, and so forth. Now, why would that be the case, that God was distressed? Well, because he loved the people of God. He loved Israel. And what I mean is this. This is not just sort of like anger, just plain anger. When you love someone, and God loved Israel, he had called Israel out from the nations, you are distressed. You suffer a paroxysm. When? When you see the people you love doing what's going to bring their own ruin. And that's what Paul felt as well. Uh, Paul was provoked deeply in his heart because when he saw idolatry being practiced, he knew two things. He knew, one, that this robbed the true God, the creator God of his glory, his glory and honor and worship, which he alone deserves. And Paul was troubled deeply by that, but he was also troubled by the fact that he knew that this is what brings ruin upon humanity, ruin upon people. And so Paul's deep desire, and Paul makes clear that his deep desire was that God, first of all, that God be honored, God be glorified, God be known and worshiped and thanked and exalted for who he is. Uh, just like the, the question, the first question of the shorter catechism, you know, many of you have memorized, right? What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I mean, that's, this was a great burden of Paul when he saw that people, human beings made in the very image of God are not glorifying God, but worshiping other creatures. And it just, it just broke his heart. It distressed him. You know, if you want to follow the theology of Paul, which he is uh, communicating in Acts 17, you just read the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 4 especially. There you see what's going on in Paul's thinking while he's talking here in Acts 17. Romans chapter 1 <clears throat> says this, Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools. That's Athens. 
That's what Paul saw. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Images resembling mortal man. Statues and birds and animals and creeping things. There's Athens. Therefore God gave them up or gave them over to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Because, verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. For a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And here you hear his heart. Who is blessed forever. Amen. <laughs> it's God alone who deserves this worship. And it broke his heart when he saw human beings worshiping, exchanging the worship of God for the worship of creatures or images of man. Hmm. Paul saw the deepest need of humanity and it's summed up on that altar that they had. They did not know God. <laughs> that was the fundamental problem of those people and it is the deepest problem of every person. They did not know God despite all their thinking and debating and philosophy for centuries and all these great thinkers. All their searching, it still left them searching for something new. Why? Because they did not know God. Knowing God, beloved, is our greatest problem. If we don't know Him, it is our greatest need. And when you know Him, known by Him, it is the greatest joy. It is the highest good for human beings. That's what sustains you. The Lord Jesus said <clears throat> in what we call His high priestly prayer, in John 17, verse 25, He prays, He says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, the Son knows the Father, and these know that you've sent me, the disciples, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. Here's the result. That the love with which you have loved me, inner Trinitarian love, may be in them and I in them. Yes. Knowing God is our greatest need and knowing him is to know and experience the inner trinitarian love between the father and the son and the holy spirit and having that in your own life's experience paul's motivation he was provoked by seeing human beings lost he was provoked uh, by a righteous indignation that God's glory was robbed and he was brokenhearted that human beings don't know God. And so they spend their lives spinning around looking for something new. Beloved, I think our evangelism is inflamed again. If it's getting cold in your heart, it's easy to get cold. Our evangelism is inflamed again when we feel what Paul felt. When we feel that God's being robbed of His glory and people are dying because they don't know Him and their lives are wasted on useless ideas. Pray for it. Pray for that, that your heart would be inflamed again with, with viewing people like that. That was Paul's motivation. What was his methodology? 
Well, I won't spend much time on that right now because it was very similar to what he did and we saw last week. It's very simple and direct. Verse 17 says, So, meaning because he was provoked, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. In other words, Jew first. He started where he did all the time. And in the marketplace, that's new, the Agora, every day with those who happen to be there. Very simple and direct. That same verb that we saw last week. He reasoned, meaning to dialogue, to have discourse, to use questions. Someone has said, Paul used the Socratic method in the city of Socrates. <laughs> he went there. He discoursed. He got involved in discussions, first with the Jews, but we've seen that, but also in the, the Agora, in the public place. And I think, um, I think if you're a Christian this morning, if you're a Christian, be you here or somewhere in the courtyard or at home, if you're a Christian here, the encouragement to you and me is not to go find a, a city corner to stand and preach. I don't think that's the encouragement per se. You can do that. We don't have, right now, we don't have one place that is equivalent to what happened in the Agora, that marketplace. There's not one singular place for us like that. I think if you're a Christian, the point is what we, we saw last week, and that is to live, live with gospel readiness and a gospel intentionality, and this week, in the public square. Wherever your place is in the public square. That might be on a campus. It might be at a, on a job, a career. It might be interacting with people in your neighborhood. But to, I think the point to you and me to take is to live with a gospel intentionality and readiness wherever we are or find ourselves in the public square. We touched on this last week. And that was in part why I used the testimony of Rosaria Butterfield uh, at the end of last week's message. If you weren't here, you didn't hear that, you'd like to, you can just find that online and you hear the message. Um, and the reason I, I used her testimony in part was because really it's a bridge between the, both worlds, between the synagogue and between the agora, the marketplace, because her story began where it is this week, where? in the Agora, in the marketplace. Remember what the testimony was. Just briefly remember that she was a lesbian, a practicing lesbian, and what she did is she wrote against Christianity in the public square. She wrote an article, and it was published, and she was using her position to attack the faith. And what happened in the public square? In the public square, a pastor interacted with her, entered, he reasoned uh, with her. He entered into a discourse with her using questions, asking her, why is it you believe this? How is it that you can know that? And so forth. And he engaged her patiently and lovingly. And what happened there in the public square is that she began to uh, enter into a discussion with this pastor. And then eventually she read the Bible. Eventually she read through the Bible several times, remember, in several different translations, and eventually we said that Jesus triumphed in her, in her heart. But that's when she had, was more like uh, one of the God-fearers in the synagogue at that point, you see. And so I, I, I mention that again just to point out that it can begin so simply. It can begin so simply with, with just a question of why is it you believe that? Or how is it that you know that to be absolutely true? Uh, to just begin to address people's presuppositions. So the point then is don't allow the culture 
to make you believe that it's okay to be a Christian, but that your faith is a private matter. That your faith doesn't belong in the, in the marketplace. Your faith doesn't belong in the, mar- in, the, in the public square, in the agora of the culture. Your voice needs to be heard in the public square as God gives you opportunity. The gospel, our faith, must go public to reach the public. Proverbs 120 says, Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. And so there you have Paul's methodology. His motivation, what was it? He is deeply stirred, troubled by God's glory being robbed and by people being so lost. And then his methodology, very, very simple. Lovingly, patiently engage people in discourse regarding their beliefs. Now, we look at his message for the remainder of our time. Paul's message, um, the heart of what Paul was saying is summed up at the end of verse 18. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Yes, we expect Paul to be saying that, uh, or Luke to be saying that about Paul. What was Paul getting to in the Agora? Jesus and the resurrection. That, that was his message. It's summed up there. But how he gets to Jesus and the resurrection with intellectuals who have a whole different worldview, with academics, with philosophers, how he gets there is different from how he gets there in the synagogue. In the synagogue, where they have the mutual uh, connection with Scripture, he can begin with Abraham, and he could build upon their knowledge of the Scriptures. But in Athens, in the Areopagus, that is not where he starts. So let's follow what happens here. First of all, notice the accusation. It says in verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also converse with him. That verb means to debate, uh, to discuss. So a couple of them got in it with him there in the public square. Wouldn't that have been fun to hear that, you know? Yeah, pass me popcorn. Watch this. <laughs> so they get in it with Paul, and one of them says, what does this babbler wish to say? The word babbler is really funny. It means seed picker. <laughs> and what, what they were getting at is, you know, this guy has no cohesive worldview to, that he's presenting. He's like a little bird that picks at a seed here or there, you know? Or like a scavenger that grabs a little scrap here, a little scrap there. He's just a babbler. What did others say about Paul? They said, well, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Notice the plural. And then he says, why, did, why divinities plural? Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And the Greek, the original uh, resurrection is a feminine noun, anastasis. And it was common for the Greeks to, uh, to use, uh, what would we call them, to use some um, uh, abstract qualities and, and name gods after that, like mercy or shame or pride. And so here is Jesus and his female consort, Anastasis. <laughs> he must be preaching about two different divinities here. Now, the point, the reason I make that point is this. I want you to be encouraged. They did not understand Paul's worldview at all. (laughs) At all. And you say, how's that encouraging? (laughs) Because, beloved, there's so many people today that will reason this way, and they will say that 
Obviously, ancient people were so gullible. Anyone comes along and tells people that someone rose from the dead and they would accept it. Not so. Not so. The, the, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The Greeks seek wisdom, cohesive systems. The crosses and, and resurrection is, is foolishness to them. And so what I want you to see from this that is that the, the message of a Jewish man being crucified in order to be reconciled to God and then, and then raised from the dead three days later was just as implausible and inconceivable, incomprehensible to them as it is today. Just as it is with academics today. Just as it is with the, uh, the, uh, the elites today. That's what it was like then. And so... We should be encouraged that some were reached there, and God is still reaching those people today. Now, who was his audience? The audience was these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. They were the primary audience. There were also academics there. Academics were people who were essentially saying, we don't, we're not sure we're buying into any of these systems. Uh, you know, the jury's out still. We'll, we'll think through this. Uh, who were the Epicureans? And Man, I'm really just condensing this, right? Uh, basically, the Epicureans, um, they did not deny the existence of gods, but if there were any gods, if any gods exist, they're, they're so transcendent, they're not involved in anything that's going on in our lives. They don't care. They're so distant. They don't bother with you and me, so you and me shouldn't bother with them, all right? And they thought that matter is all that there is, and therefore, when you die, you just dissolve. Uh, there is no real uh, afterlife. And so what's the answer? What's the answer to life's troubles and what life's experience? Here's the answer, pleasure. Pleasure is the highest good. They were the, the original hedonists, if you would. Pleasure is the highest goal and the absence of pain, making your life as comfortable as it can possibly be. If it feels good, just do it. Now, those were the Epicureans. Uh, they were famous for all their banquets and things like that. There weren't many Epicureans. <laughs> Why? Because there weren't many. You had to be rich to be a good Epicurean. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, you know, go, go for all the gusto means one thing when you got 20 bucks in your pocket. And go for all the gusto is something else when you got 10 million in the bank. Right? So like Solomon could be an Epicurean. He had time to do things, right? So the majority of the crowd were not Epicureans. The Stoics reacted to that, you see. And they, they reacted and said, pleasure isn't the highest goal because you keep going, going, and get it, and you've, you're dissatisfied. And a lot of us can't achieve that kind of pleasure as it is. So Stoicism was more popular, and they viewed the gods in a more pantheistic way. That means that God was not only near, but he was part of everything. Uh, there was a spark of divinity in every person and in and every creature, everything, right? God was more like a force, or gods were like the, a force that permeates everything, sort of like Star Wars, right? Um, but it was not a personal force. <laughs> it was not a personal force at all. It was more like fate. Or, uh, and so reason became the highest virtue to the Stoics, and from reason we learned that we should respond to life's troubles very calmly. Uh, keep a stiff upper lip. Grin and bear it, right? And so the highest virtue to the Stoics was self-sufficiency. Just be quiet, make your way through life. It just is what it is. They believed that history was cyclical. You can't do anything about it. 
now. So on the one hand, you have what? A bunch of partiers, hedonists. <laughs> and uh, if it feels good, do it. On the other hand, you have Stoics, Grin and Barrett, who can't do anything about it. <laughs> Both were absolutely bankrupt spiritually. But you did, we should appreciate this. Both of them were the product of a long, long, real and genuine search of human beings who are broken by what's happening in the world. Human beings trying to figure out how to, how to make sense of life, how to make sense of what happens. Why all that we see? Why the pain? Why the hurt? Why the violence? Why? What keeps everything together? But they were bankrupt. Why? They did not know God. And so they, they had a worldview. They had different worldviews, but all their worldviews were shaped by speculation, human speculation and evaluation, not divine revelation. And so this is the world Paul is coming into with divine revelation. Where was he taken? He was, verse 19 says, They took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, the Areopagus was both a place and a council. Uh, the Areopagus uh, was on Mars Hill, as we refer to it, but it was also a council. They held court. The Areopagus was a group of men, uh, sometimes 30, sometimes more. I, I, on one occasion, I read up to 100. And they held court regarding some civil matters, but especially regarding ideas. They were like the religious police, you know. What are these divinities that you're talking about? Uh, I think that Luke's emphasis is on the fact that he was brought before the council. More so than the place. Why? Because verse 33, so Paul went out from their midst, out from the presence of the council. Uh, so he's getting us to think, I think very subtly here, of the fact that Paul was brought before this group. Now, it would not be lost, it would not be lost on Luke or on Paul, who was trained in Tarsus, uh, a, 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 a very strong uh, academic city, it would not be lost on any of them, or Theophilus, the first reader of this, that Socrates was tried by the Areopagus, and that he was tried for, among other things, for preaching or speaking about foreign divinities. And this is exactly why Paul was taken to the Areopagus, because he's speaking about foreign divinities. And so New Testament scholars, they debate this. Was Paul on trial? Was Paul on trial when he stood there? We cannot be absolutely sure, but it seems, it appears that at least he was standing before some sort of preliminary hearing to see whether or not he should stand on trial. <laughs> and in other words, this could have been a dangerous moment for Paul. And we should see some of that, that boldness that he had as he stood before the Areopagus as they heard him out. And he explained himself. And so he was taken there for what? To explain, what do you mean by Jesus and Anastasis? Who are these divinities? But before he answers, he has an introduction in which he makes a point of contact. So Paul, verse 22, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, in the midst of them, he said, men of Athens, I perceive, that verb means I come to a, an evaluation, 
uh, he's been thinking about this, that in every way you are very religious. That's his opening line. Now that term religious is very interesting because it's really ambiguous. It could be negative or positive. A negative, it can mean, I, I perceive that you're really a bunch of superstitious people who are all worried about what my gods might do to you, so you put up altars to an unknown god just to cover your bases, you know? You're superstitious. Or it could be a, po- a positive statement. I perceive that you're very pious about your worship of gods. You're very religious. I don't know, maybe Paul's just super clever, led by the Holy Spirit. Paul himself is thinking superstitious, and they're hearing, oh, we're really pious. Either way, he makes the connection with these people, the point of contact. And one of the things he does by saying this is this. He, he drew attention to human nature as inherently religious. This is what Paul says in Romans 1, remember. Human beings have an innate knowledge of God, right and wrong, and creation tells human beings there is a creator, but Romans 1.18, we suppress that knowledge. We suppress it. We don't want to think about it. And so what he is pointing out, is, and he points out more in Romans 1, is that there's a religious impulse in all human beings. That's why he says in Romans 1, when we stopped worshiping the creator, we didn't stop being worshipers. We just worship something else because God has made us to do that, you see. And so Paul, Paul knows something that I think you all need to remember, and that is this, that no matter what people say, somewhere, way down, inside, their human conscience made by God in his image is on your side. (laughs) At some point, it's on your side. They cannot deny that there is something within them, innate. There's a religious uh, conscience, so to speak, uh, in every human being. Then verse 23, he begins to begin to, to launch into what he is going to say to them. But he says, as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. And archaeology has demonstrated there were many altars like that, sometimes in the plural. And so this one he saw in Athens, to the unknown God. It says, what therefore you worship as unknown, not who you worship, but what, because you don't even know him to be personal. What you therefore worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And so now he underscores their ignorance. You see, human beings until that God opens our eyes, we're caught in, in both of these. We have both, we have both a, a knowledge of God that is limited by sin, which we suppress, and therefore an ignorance of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God, the true God. Religious we remain, but not towards the true God, per se, apart from his grace. And so what Paul's essentially saying to them, if you put those two things together, he's saying, let me tell you about the God you know you don't know. Let me tell you about the God you know <laughs> that you don't know, which is why you put up an altar to make sure that you're covered. And what we have here then is his foundation. He lays a foundation uh, 
He lays a foundation of the Christian worldview in order to place Jesus and the resurrection in it so that Jesus and the resurrection make sense, you see. He can't just start. There was this Jewish man, he was killed, and he rose from the dead. That's it, end of story. What's that mean? Uh, so he, he communicates a Christian worldview, and this is more and more what we have to do today. He answers the big questions. Who is God? And in light of that, who is man? What is man? And what's the problem? And what does God want us to do about it? This is essentially what he says. Now, I think what we have here is really just a, a, um, a summary, an outline of Paul's sermon. It takes all of two minutes to read it. Uh, and uh, Don Carson, in one of his papers on this, on Athens, he says that, at the Areopagus, it was very common for speakers to be given upwards to two or three hours. So we're going to be here a while. No, I'm just, <laughs> no, I, I, Paul had a lot more to say. This is probably, these are probably how he made his way through his main point, so to speak. And so what's he say about God? He says, first of all, God is the creator. God is the creator, the God. There's only one God, the God who made the world and everything in it. Everything you see around you, everything you see in nature as they would have seen it, all things, they all come from the one God. And God, being the Lord of heaven and earth, as creator, he is Lord. He is master over everything. This would be a statement against the Stoics because the Stoics believe that God is, is distinct. What he's saying is God is separate from creation. Yes, He's involved in it. He's the creator, but he's not part of it. <laughs> he is Lord of it. He is Lord of everything that you see uh, and all humanity. And then he says, being creator, um, go back to being Lord of heaven and earth, verse 24, he does not live in temples made by man. It's absurd to think that he would live in temples or be confined to temples. We know he manifests his presence in temples in, 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 in the, for the people of Israel, but he is not limited. God's not confined to one place. He's talking here about the immensity of God. Uh, God is everywhere. He's not confined. He's not a regional deity. They would have heard it that way too. He's not just the God of Israel. He's the, the God of the world. Where's that place, humanity? Well, if he's creator of everything, then we are creatures made by God. God is the sustainer, verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God doesn't need anything from you. Uh, he doesn't need these animals that you, you, that you kill. He doesn't need anything from you. You need him. <laughs> He's the one who sustains everything. You are all, we are all dependent. God is self-sufficient, independent, absolutely, completely. He is the preserver of life. And so this would be against the Epicureans who felt that God was so distant he didn't care. No, he's very close. In fact, he sustains, every, sustains your life every single day. Psalm 50, verse 10, perhaps this was running in the minds of Paul Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, <laughs> for the world and its fullness are mine. 
Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. You be thankful for him and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. See, you aren't helping me, says God. You call on me, I deliver you and you will glorify me. Me. Christian, this should really encourage you this morning that God is the sustainer of your life. The Lord whom you know, your Father in heaven, is the one who upholds all things and he is your provider. Uh, God is also sovereign, sovereign over the nations. Verse 26, he made from one man, from Adam, he brings in the creation and from Adam down, he made every nation of mankind, uh, our, the ethnicities as we refer to it, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. The, the rising and falling of nations, says, says Paul, is all determined by God. All the unique uh, features of humanity and human beings, they all come from God. All these things have been determined. This would have been quite a, a blow or an insult to the uh, Athenians who thought they were self, you know, self-made and the rest of the world was a bunch of barbarians. <laughs> And here he's saying the one God has made you. He's determined who you'd be, where you'd be, where you live, when you live, what you look like. All of that is determined by the Lord. John Wesley used to say, I read the daily newspaper to see how God is ruling his world. <laughs> because everything that happens, it's very biblical, comes from God ultimately God is eminent. Though he is glorious and Lord of all things and cannot be contained, he is near. Verse 27, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For, he quotes a poet, in him we live and move and have our being. And even as some of your other poets have said, for we indeed are his, are his offspring. God is not far from every one of us. Uh, in him we live and move and have our being. And here he emphasizes that God is so close that he's the one who gives us life, but he's separate from us, right? What's he do? He's not giving, he's not giving these uh, poet statements the same authority as scripture. He's using language they're familiar with, but putting a Christian understanding to it. It's not quite exactly as you thought. To those who believe God is near, He's not in everything. He is creator over everything, yet he indeed, he is very close to every single one of us. He is eminent. Uh, so he is, he is catechizing the Athenians. <laughs> he is giving them a Christian worldview. Beloved, again, be encouraged. You're a Christian this morning. Uh, you have the Emmanuel. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and he is in you. That's how that's how eminent he is. He dwells in each one of you by his Holy Spirit. This God is to be sought, verse 27, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Um, a very interesting statement. God made humanity from the very beginning that humanity should know the Lord and seek him. And connecting it in context, Every, all the works of God, all the works of God in creation and in providence, they're all meant to point human, human beings to, to God, to, to, to call them to seek Him, to orient them towards Him. You know, this is the same kind of argument 
he presented earlier in Acts 14 at Lystra. Remember when, when this man was healed because of Paul and they thought Paul and Barnabas were gods? Remember that? That happened in Lystra. In Acts 14, 15, this is how Paul responded. He said, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you and we bring you good news. Here's the good news, that, that you should turn or repent from these vain things to a living God. God's a living God, not just the statue who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. That's what he says in Acts 17. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. That's almost the same thing that he's saying in Acts chapter 17. God has left a testimony for you to seek him. And even the rains and the harvest, they all come from him. But Paul also very subtly underscores the fact that though we are to seek God, there is a problem. Um, the effects of sin. There is something that hinders us. We ought to be men uh, and women like Cornelius. Remember in chapter 10, a God-fearer but Cornelius needed something more, right? He needed the gospel to come to him. The verbs that Luke uses here, that he says Paul used, feel and find, are, are in a very rare form in the New Testament. Very few verbs appear in this form. It's called the optative move, mood, and what it means is there's a remote possibility of this happening, <laughs> That you might perhaps, and that's why the word might in some translations perhaps is there, you might perhaps grope around and feel and find him. Uh, in other words, he's showing that there is an issue here. There's something that stands in the way. He's going to remove that at the end when he presents Christ. James Boyce, uh, the late James Boyce, points out that the word feel here is the word that Homer, Homer used in the story of the Cyclops. You guys remember the story of the Cyclops? And how he was blinded by that sharp stake. And the very same verb was used there. That he was groping around. Groping around feeling. Trying to catch the hero of the story. And he says that's what humanity is like. You, 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 you try and seek. But you're, you're blind like the cyclops. You can't find him. Though he is very near. He's as close as the rain. He's as close as the sunlight. He's as close as your very breath because he gives life to everything. But you're like a cyclops. So what did Paul do? He laid that foundation, right? the foundation of who God is and therefore who man is. He gave them a Christian worldview. And what does God ask of us now? Verse 30, he says, The times of ignorance God, of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. There is actually a therefore in the original language that the ESV doesn't place here. Verse 30 begins, therefore, therefore, because God's not made of gold and he's not a statue and God has overlooked your, um, your, your, your idolatry. In what sense? God's never punished everybody for their idolatry the way they deserved. But now God's done something different, you see. He has sent his son into the world. And his son lived and died for sin, the sins of idolatry. He was raised the third day. And so now, now God commands people everywhere to repent from that idolatry. Enough of it to repent from idolatry. And I'm sure he would have also spoken there of faith in Jesus Christ. Again, this is 
This is a summary. So what Paul says is, God's done something new, and there needs to be a turning away from your idols, a turning away from whatever it is you give the place of God in your life. You need to repent of that. And I'm sure you spoke of faith in the Lord Jesus. And then he says, and God has given assurance of this, that there's a day coming when he is going to judge all human beings, whether you're an Athenian, an idolater in Rome, or whether you're a Jew, or whether you're an American, there is coming a day that God's appointed when he's going to judge the human race through a man whom he's appointed, the man Christ Jesus. And here's the evidence God gave. He raised him from the dead. So he got... He finally got to Christ, who is Jesus, and Anastasis. <laughs> he got to Jesus and Anastasis at the end, and at that point, what happened? What do you suppose the response was like? Well, it was a lot like the Bay Area. <laughs> that some people sneered and mocked him. Others procrastinated, and a few believed. That's the same response you and I get today. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, they sneered. Others said, interesting stuff. I'll, uh, I got to go look that up on Wikipedia. I'll get back to you on that, you know. Give me some time. <laughs> they procrastinated. But others, it says in verse 34, some men, plural, joined him and believed, among who were also Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, a woman named Damaris, and others, others with them. Now, people, some scholars say this was a huge failure, this whole thing. This, a, this was a big mistake because the next city is Corinth. And when Paul writes 1 Corinthians, he says, I came to you wanting to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And they say, he says they're Greeks seek wisdom. And so what Paul was saying was, I tried to give him wisdom. That didn't work out. So now I'm here in Corinth and I'm only going to talk about Jesus, you know. Yeah. This is not how Luke narrates it as a failure, you see. This is the same theology of Romans chapters 1 through 4. Would you consider a failure if you were given the opportunity to speak to the U.S. Congress and one of the leading senators believed and others joined him and you all walked out of there? What's the scripture say? That when one sinner repents, the angels in heaven rejoice. So this was no failure, beloved. And it stands for you and me. I finish with this. This stands as a model for you and me of how to communicate, how to begin to communicate the gospel in our own pluralistic society. We need to sort of clear the table of all their presuppositions and say, let's start in Genesis 1. There's a creator. And then you build to the point where it makes sense who is Jesus and what does the resurrection mean and God, listen, that's the message that saves Jew and Gentile alike. And that's the only message you have and, where, and whereby it may still be foolishness to some, for you and others, it's still the power of God unto salvation. This is how we make the unknown God known. It's still through the word of God. Let's, let's pray and, and worship the Lord.